Hello, this is Mark Iaconelli. Before we get into this episode of Homebound Oregon, I want to let you know about a couple of opportunities where we can get together. The Hearth is sponsoring a one-day workshop on the art of personal storytelling on January 29th. That's open to the public. It'll be online. Would love to have you join us for that. And then our training in community storytelling, our certificate training in community storytelling begins in April. And during the month of December, we have a special early bird discount on that training. You can find out about these and other programs at thehearthcommunity.com. This is Homebound Oregon, a podcast created for these weird times, set in the town of Ashland, Oregon, right here in the foothills of the Cascade and Siskiyou Mountains. So for two weeks, a dense fog and low-lying clouds have sat thick and heavy here in the Rogue Valley, making it difficult to see even five feet in front of us here in Ashland. Neighbors have duct-taped leaf blowers and fans to the hoods of their cars, but it hasn't helped much. And then all of a sudden yesterday, the fog lifted and many of us found we'd been living in the wrong house. We'd brought home the wrong children. We were working jobs that we didn't know how to do. I mean, Tom, the refrigerator repairman, came up my driveway yesterday afternoon delivering the mail with this sort of bewildered look on his face. Once that fog cleared, we just entered into a sort of organ awkwardness. Husbands and wives were returned to their original partners. Children were brought to their parents. And everyone went back to their designated lives. We are in winter here in Oregon. It's a time of darkness. It's colder. A time of reflection and remembrance. And so we do what most human beings do in winter. We work to bring forth the light, drag trees into our living rooms and cover them in baubles. We light candles on tables, string lights across the front of our homes. This is the season when artists do their work, and we are a town of artists. If you walk downtown, you may come across a group of teenagers playing fiddle. come across the young man who plays accordion in the little alley next to the movie theater. You might enter one of our coffee shops and find two people just standing in the middle of the room singing out the heart's longing. This is how we help one another return to what matters. You know, the fears and grief of the world can really surround us in winter. So we need a little song, a little beauty, some silence, a story 
to bring us back to what matters. So for this episode, we thought we'd make it simple. We have one story, a love story, my love story, a walk in the snow. This was first shared at a community gathering just two years ago. The theme for that night was Stories to Remember. I was a junior in high school. My dad came to me and said, uh, listen, I got a friend. He works in the development department at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. Uh, You're going to be thinking about college soon. Why don't we go check it out? So this was uh, late spring, my junior year in high school. We got in the car, father-son trip. We live in Wairika, so you know we, we can make it in a day. We get up early. We drive north, show up to the university, meet my dad's friend, Vic Gilliam. And uh, he's excited to see my dad. My dad's excited to see him. They break into conversation. I'm kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. Uh, and it was one of those days where the fog in the Willamette Valley was, was like clam chowder. You know, you couldn't see anything. I couldn't really see the campus. I couldn't really see the buildings. I'd never been on a college tour before. And we're waiting there, and uh, eventually Vic says, there was supposed to be a student here to take you around. Let me call his dorm. And he calls the dorm, and nobody answers. He says, well, I'll show you around. So we're walking around. I can't see anything. It's cold. Um, We go into the history department, which is what I wanted to study, and I was supposed to have an appointment with a professor. And the professor, the faculty administrator says, oh, he called in sick, he's not going to be here. So I missed that appointment. So we just kind of walked around. We went to a cafeteria, had a very C-minus lunch. <laughs> and then it was time to leave. And my dad said, yeah, that was a waste of time. And I said, yeah, I've kind of felt the same way. And we talked about other things driving. But later, we would uh, tell each other, we both knew, this is where I'm going to school. This is also why the alumni department doesn't ask me to do any promotion. (laughs) When I graduated, I went to Willamette. And uh, the first day of school, I still remember my first class, Professor Sutliff, uh, English 101. I'm sitting in class. They have two rectangular tables together, kind of makes a square. There's about 16 of us sitting around uh, this square table. Professor Sutliff's in the front. He's talking, he's profound, he's speaking from like way down here, and I have my notebook out, and I'm listening, and I'm taking notes, and I have that college desire, you know, I want to grow, I want to change, I want to become someone else. And I'm listening and listening, and it's about four or five minutes into class, and the door opens, and we all look, and I look, and like loveliness comes into the room, (laughs) this tall, athletic, you know, long, uh, dark brown hair, brown eyes, this sweet little bow mouth, cute nose, and she's got this smile, and she's a little embarrassed, and she smiles at all of us, and the smile is honest, and uh, I feel this intelligence, and all of a sudden, you know, she comes, and there's only one chair, and it's right next to me, and she sits in the chair, and, well, let me, let me just take an aside here for a minute. I once went to a Grateful Dead concert, I, I wasn't into the Grateful Dead. I went to see Bob Dylan. It was Dylan and the Dead. They played Autzen Stadium, 35, 40,000 hippies and people on drugs and things like that. 
I didn't know what was going on the whole time. I'd never been to a dead concert. I didn't know who they were. I just was there to see Bob Dylan. And at one point in the concert where there's kind of this jazz odyssey's going on, I don't know if anybody knows what they're playing, everybody's playing their own thing. I don't know what's happening in this music. But at one point, the drummer, I think it was Mickey Hart, gets up, and behind the whole stage is a giant gong. And he hits this gong. And then, I remember turning around looking at the stage, because everybody's just doing this. Ooh. Ooh. And then he would hit it again. It was like this thing everybody knew what this was. And then they would just kind of all shake like this, 35,000 people. Whoa. This is what I was feeling <laughs> when I saw her, right? It's like 35,000 hippie molecules within me are just going, whoa, whoa. You know, you're confused. You can't see right. I can't think right. And she's sitting right here, and I can feel her presence. And so I'm no longer listening. He's like in a tin can, miles away, the professor talking. I don't care about improving myself anymore or learning. I have got to catch the attention of this beautiful young woman. So I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I think, well, I have my notes right in front of me. I'll just push it a little bit to the right, and I'll try to say something interesting that would catch her attention and draw her to looking at me. So I think and think, and then I write in the margins, sometimes I hold a fork in front of my eyes and pretend everyone around me is in jail. And it works. <laughs> I hear her trying not to laugh as she read this thing. I kind of look over and it's like, okay, I've got her attention. So I'm trying to think of the next thing to write, focused on how do I get this person. And when I go to write it, I look down and she has written something on my paper in this beautiful print. And she wrote, I'm actually a house cat dressed in lady clothes. <laughs> and when I look over at her, she goes, Meow. And now I'm trying not to laugh. And in fact, both of us are kind of catching this hilarious little moment, and the professor stops and says, are you guys okay? What's going on over there? You know, yeah, nothing fine. And we're both trying to pay attention, but now we have this secret conversation that's going on. And for the rest of the class, we start writing these little notes back and forth, trying to make each other laugh. And the professor keeps talking, and the hour and a half is up, and the class is ending, and I put my stuff in my bag, and I stand up to say something to her, when the guy, a guy sitting across the table comes over, says hello to her, puts his arm around her, and the two walk out. We never say a word. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got competition. <laughs> I go to lunch that afternoon, I'm in Spanish 101, 
Spanish class is a large class, about 65, 70 of us. I get there early. I'm kind of, I take a seat in the back. And just before class starts, I see this same young woman walk in. She's got a different guy with her. And they're whispering and talking. And I can tell, what's going on here? And they've got a little intimacy going. And they sit in the front row. He's kind of leaning into her. She's kind of leaning into him. And I realize she's a playa. There's only one person here under 30 who understands that reference. <laughs> and she's got, she's, she's got another guy in this other class. And uh, when she goes to leave, I kind of sit there and I try to catch her eye, and she catches my eye, and she gives me a smile, but she keeps going, and she's walking with this other guy. I was on cross-country team. Um, I go to cross-country practice. We come out of the locker rooms, which are in the bottom of the stadium, and they're kind of at a lower level, and we're, we're stretching outside the locker rooms, and just my head is sort of over the track. And I look over the track, and there she is. And she's more beautiful than I thought. She's in these running shorts and tank top, and she's jogging around the track with another guy who is not the Spanish language guy, nor the English 101 guy either. And when they get done, uh, he gives her a kiss. I'm like, what is going on? And uh, for the next two months, we would sit in that class in English. She would sit next to me, and I would sit next to her, and we would write these funny things. But we rarely said a word, maybe hello, maybe a little phrase, because she was dating this guy across the table, and I guess every other guy (laughs) on that campus. (laughs) And my feelings for her were just, the, the, the more she wrote, she was so bright and funny and clever, and I just was falling, 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 falling. On November 7th, 1985, my grandmother sent me a 10 of oatmeal chocolate chip cookies. I picked them up right before I went to the morning class, and I thought, this is what I need, a prop. And I said to her before the class started, hey, um, I got some oatmeal chocolate chip cookies from my grandma. They're going to be really good. Do you want to study tonight, and maybe we could work on what's going on in this class, whatever it is, and eat these cookies? And she says, yeah. So I tell her, my dorm number, and um, I go, and, and she comes over that night, and I got the cookies, I got the candles lit, I got my little hot teapot, you know, the lights dimmed. I told my roommate, find someone in the other dorm room to stay in tonight. I need this place. And she sits down, and we start talking. We're both 18 years old. And we start, maybe for the first time, trying to craft what our lives are, Right? where I grew up and where I went to school and what it was like having siblings and what it was like being in, on a track team. And we're telling stories back and forth about our lives. And I just am having so much fun talking to this lovely person. And we're laughing and then we're having meaningful parts about our parents and it goes on and on and on. We eat the whole tin of cookies. We drink cup and cup after tea. And then, and, and then about 3.30 in the morning, We're just exhausted, and it's that sleepy joy that you feel sometimes. And I walk her back across campus to the sorority, come back to my dorm room. Our professor in the English class had us keep journals, and he said, "Um, every night I want you to write a page. doesn't matter what it is, write a page. I still have that journal. 
And I opened it up on November 7th, 1985, and I wrote, tonight I met the woman I'm going to marry. I thought this. She had about eight other guys <laughs> who had written the same thing in their journals. <laughs> and at that point, when, once that happened, I thought, I've got to up my game. She had mentioned that she really loved a food called Stromboli. And so I made up a character named Larry Stromboli, and I started writing her secret notes from this guy about how madly in love he was with her and drawing pictures and writing poems and stuff, and she would get these secret admirer notes from Larry Stromboli. I started creating treasure hunts where she would get in the mail or find in her book binder or something a little clue, and the clue would lead her to another clue and to another clue and another clue and another clue until she would finally come to the prize. Now, I was in college. I was broke, so it was usually a little piece of candy or a carnation, you know, some little gift. And I was, uh, one time I thought, I need to do something even more um, um, direct to sort of stand out. So I knew she was in the corner room in her sorority. I had a little book of old-time love songs that my grandfather had given me, and I've been learning these on guitar. So I called the sororities, find out if she was in her room, and they said yes, and I, I went outside about 11.30 at night, and I just started singing, because I knew she had a little balcony, and I just started singing. And we had just seen Romeo and Juliet, and I was trying to, to sing that song. You know, what is a rose? Sometimes it fades. What is a youth? Lisa, can you help me here? Do you remember this song? No. Okay. And I sang, I love you truly, truly I do. I love you truly. And I was hamming it up, and I was acting kind of goofy, and she comes out of the room, but, you know, she could also tell I was deadly serious underneath the sort of uh, jocular attitude I had. And she comes out, and she puts her elbows on the banister, and she puts her face in there, and she's kind of watching me. And her roommate's out, and they're laughing, and I'm hamming it up, singing more and more songs, and I'm thinking, this is fantastic. And then some guy... I had never seen this guy. It turns out he was from the graduate school. Comes out of the room. Puts his arms around her. And is like, hey, this guy's hilarious. And I just kind of wrapped it up and left. This is about a few days before Thanksgiving. When Thanksgiving break hit, they give us a week off. And so I head south to Wairika on the other side of the mountains here. And, and um, I'm telling my friends and my my brother and everybody about this girl and how madly in love with her. And I'm also saying she's got all these boyfriends. And of course, my brother and my friends are going, you're an idiot. You know, she's, she's not going to fall for you. There's too many people in this race here. You're making a fool of yourself. There's plenty of other girls. What are you doing? And, and I keep saying, well, but she's really special and she's funny and she laughs. But yeah, but she won't even talk to you in the class. And, you know, you know this is never going to work. And, I, and eventually they convince me that they're right and I need to give up. Thanksgiving happens, the Friday after break, the Saturday after Thanksgiving break, my dad comes into the house and says, hey, you got a letter. I got a letter? Yeah. I get this letter, and I open it up, and it said, Catton Residence, Oakland, Oregon, on the outside. And I open it up, and it's from this girl. And she's got all this writing about what her Thanksgiving's been like, but on the left side is a drawing, stick figures. It's a balcony. And there's a young woman, kind of a little stick figure young woman with her, elbows on the banister and her face in her hands and she's looking down. This guy's singing I Love You Truly with a guitar up there. And I realize 
She drew this and sent it to me. I am in this game. And so back in those days, this is, this is the 1980s for, those, for the one person under 30, when you wanted to communicate with someone, you had to get a long string and some cans or a donkey and some slate. You would chip the thing out in slate and you'd find someone to deliver it to the next donkey and that's how you communicated. No, what we did in those days, because we didn't have cell phones, so you called information. I had the address, I had the family name, I called information for Oakland, Oregon, and I got the phone number, they patched me through, and she answers the phone. I said, hey, I just got your card. She goes, oh good, I'm glad you got it. You know, and I said, hey, we're, we're driving back up to school tomorrow, I'm, I'm riding with some friends, why don't you ride with us, we got an extra seat. And she says, well, no, I really miss my family, I don't really have to be at school till Thursday, so I'm gonna stay a few more days. And I said, no, you don't need to see your family. <laughs> you know, you should ride with us. And she says, no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna stay. But she goes, hey, could you stop by? I said, that's a great idea. We'll stop by. She goes to a place called Bart's Market. Pull into the market and we'll see each other. Great. So I said, I'll call you when we get closer. We hang up, get into the, um, or, 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 that this is on a, a Saturday. The next day we're supposed to leave at noon, Sunday. And so I'm waiting for my buddies, Tristan and Trevor, and 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. I'm calling them. Yeah, yeah, we're doing some stuff at the house. 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. We don't leave until 7 o'clock at night. And we're coming up in Wairika, and it's starting to snow. And it's just coming down lightly, you know, just kind of these wisps, flakes. And we come over the pass, and, and I tell these guys, listen, um, I really want to stop at this town, Oakland. It's right on the I-5. It's just north of Roseburg, and I want to see this girl. You guys are going to love this girl. And they're like, there's no way we're doing that. You know, we need to get back to school. We don't want to have you talking to somebody. We just need to get back to school. So I keep trying to convince them, convince them, and they're just like, we're not doing this. So we pull into Roseburg, and by now the snow is getting kind of heavy. And so they want to make a quick stop. So we pull in to get gas, we get a little food in the gas station, I get on the phone, and I call her. And um, I say, listen, I, I really wanted to stop, I can't believe we can't stop, but you know, these guys are, it's their car, and we're driving, and, and they're not going to, she goes, oh shoot, you know, my mom keeps saying you're going to make a stop, and I will tell your mom I'm trying, but you know, it, it just can't happen. She goes, okay, well, I'll see you at school in three days. We get back in. We take off. Now it's, I don't know, 1030 at night. We go past Sutherland, if you know that area. Then we come to Oakland. But there's, you can't really see a town. You just see an exit. And when we pass the Oakland exit, we go one mile. The traffic's getting slower. We go two miles. And all of a sudden, the traffic stops. And we're just dead stopped in the road. And we're kind of waiting, waiting, waiting for this traffic to clear. The uh, glass is fogging up. The snow's still coming down pretty heavy. And then I see, we all see, people are getting out of their cars. And they're going and walking up to the trucks, right? Because the trucks have CBs. They might know what's happening. So you go out there, and a trucker is kind of telling folks, yeah, on Rice Hill, there's been a jackknife, and they're trying to clear it, but we're going to be here a little while. And so we get back in the car, and we're sitting there. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. It's now past, well past 11. And um, suddenly, I'm just sitting there, and I feel the 35,000 hippie molecules within me going, hey, dude, she's close. You know, I'm just kind of vibrating. Like, I can't believe she's only two miles away. 
and I'm stuck here on this freeway, on, this, uh, on the interstate, dead stopped, nothing happening, snow coming down. And I'm thinking and thinking, and then I remember, and I pull out of my back pocket the letter, and it has her address. And I say to my friends, open the trunk. I'm like, what? I say, open the trunk, I'm getting my bag. I said, why are you getting your bag? I'm walking back into town, and I'm going to find this girl. And they're like, listen, it's 1130 at night. How are you going to find this girl? I have her address. But you don't know how to find her address. You know, how are you going to find it? I said, I will find it. I said, all right, man. They open the trunk. I get my duffel bag. I hop the divider. The other freeway had been completely stopped, and there was no cars on it. They had stopped it earlier. So I just walked down the middle of the I-5, <laughs> heading south. And the snow is just heavy coming down. And I am feeling purposeful. I know love is guiding me. Love is leading me. I am going to find this woman. And I'm walking. I got tennis shoes on. Those tennis shoes are getting soaked. I'm getting soaked with uh, snow. I don't even care. I can't even feel it. And I'm walking down. I go one mile, two miles. I come to the off-ramp. I walk up the off-ramp. It goes back over the freeway. I go down into the town. I start looking at the street signs. Now it's past midnight. And it's Pine Street and it's Elm Street. And there it is, Oak Street. Her address right on there was 840 Oak Street. I'm looking at the houses. I'm looking at the houses. Okay, there it is, 840. And I come up to the house. It's, of course, it's dark. Uh, there's no lights on. There's a lot of snow in the front. But I know that love is leading me. So I just go right up to the door. And I knock on the door. And, you know, it takes a while. I have to knock pretty loud. And then the lights come on. A dog starts barking. And the door opens. And uh, there's a screen door. And then there's a man. And the man has a uh, robe on. And he doesn't say anything. He just looks at me. And I say, hey, um, maybe you've heard of me. My name's Mark, and um, you know, you're, I know your daughter, and we've been talking to each other. And, and um, anyways, I thought I would stop by. And I, because, well, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I really like your daughter a lot. And I just wanted to say hi. And I, I don't need to come inside. I can stay out here. I just want to say hi, and then I'll stay out here. Is there any way you could bring her to the door? And this guy's like looking at me, and he says, okay, Mark. He said, uh, you go to school with my daughter. I said, yeah. He says, and, and, and you like my daughter? I said, yeah. He says, my daughter's five years old. I said, I don't know your daughter at all, at all. I have never met your daughter. He says, who are you looking for? I, and, and, I, and I said, I'm looking for the cat in house. And he says, well, why did you come here? I said, I showed him the address. He goes, oh, okay, this is Oakland. We have an Oak Street and an Oak Avenue. You're on Oak Avenue. You're not on Oak Street. And I said, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Could you just tell me how do I get to, to, to uh, Oak Street? And, and he says, J just come inside. And I said, well, I just, just get in here. So I come inside. He sits me down at the kitchen table. He says, what's going on? 
And so I tell him the story. I met this girl. I really like this girl. I'm trying to find her. And, and, he's, and I said, I just wish you'd give me the address, and I'll just go over there. And he says, no, listen, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call them. And I said, well, it's okay. You don't have to do that. And he says, listen, they don't want to go through what I just went through. <laughs> So he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call ahead. So he gets on the phone. Turns out uh, Mr. Catton was actually his daughter's kindergarten teacher. So he knew this family. And so he, he, uh, he calls over there. The father answers the phone. And um, I hear them talk. And he says, okay, he's, he's going to drive down and pick you up. And then we sit there in silence. <laughs> and we wait and wait. The snow has stopped, but it's that magical, you know, the street lights are kind of glowing off the snow. The trees are heavy white. The wintering stars are coming out, and we're waiting and waiting. And, and I see this car slowly making its way. The streets have not been plowed. It's now one in the morning. This car slowly makes its way up to the house. And when it gets there, he says, good luck. <laughs> shuts the door, and I make my way down the snow, and and out comes this man, you know, and he's all bundled up and he's worried. He's like, you've been in a car accident? Did your car slip off the road? You okay? You know, uh, you know is everything all right? And, and he's talking, asking me his question. I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. Yeah, no, I don't really have a car. He's like, well, how'd you get up here? Well, I, I don't really know. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to answer his questions. He's asking me all this stuff because the young woman has showed up and she's standing there outside the car, like looking at me like, wow, you're here. What are you doing here? And I'm looking at her like, that's right, I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing here, but this is amazing. And we're just kind of looking silently at each other while I'm answering her dad's questions. And her dad says, well, okay, uh, get in the car. And he says, uh, you get in the back and you get in the front <laughs> to his daughter. And so Jill gets in the front, and she turns her back so that her back is against the dashboard, and her feet are against the seat so she can look at me. And the dad is making the way through the heavy snow with his headlights, and we're just looking at each other. And she says, you're here. And I say, yeah, I'm here. And then we just stare at each other silently, making our way to her house. And when we get there, one in the morning, probably long past, her mother comes out, and her brother comes out, and her sister comes out. They're all dressed. <laughs> and her mother hugs me and welcomes me. We come in the house, and there's candles lit. There's a pitcher of cocoa, and you can smell fresh bread has been baking, and it's, it's applesauce bread. And Jill says to me, my mom kept telling us, no one was going to sleep. That young man is going to be here tonight. <laughs> and we sat at that table, and we ate that bread, and 35 years later... We're sort of stuck in a line of cars. We're sort of frozen, staring forward, not sure what's up ahead or what's behind. But there's an invitation in this time. Love is calling. Love is whispering to us. 
among our neighbors, in our streets, among the forested hills? And the question is, will we answer? Homebound Organ is produced by The Hearth out of Ashland, Oregon, with support from the Ford Family Foundation. Guitar and piano accompaniment by Dan Sherrill. Sound recordings by Tom Frederick. Susanna Cole serves as our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Mark Iaconelli. For more information on The Hearth and Homebound Organ, go to thehearthcommunity.com.